0: The rage of Achilles is both the theme of Book 1 and of the Iliad as a whole. Achilles is a son of Peleus, a king in ancient Greece. Agamemnon, the king of Mycena, and leader of the federation of the ancient Greek tribes that have come to war with Troy, holds as his slave and concubine a girl named Chryseus.
1: I almost named my daughter that.
0: Yeah, it's a great name. Yeah. Chryseus,
1: right? I didn't, but... Go ahead.
0: She's a spoil of war, right? Her father, a priest of Apollo named Chryses, right, offers Agamemnon a priceless ransom for his daughter. Despite the Achaeans, which is another name for the ancient Greeks, mm-hmm. petitioning Agamemnon to accept the offer, he does not. Thus, Apollo, moved by his priest's prayers, strikes the Achaean army with a plague that is, his arrows, as Homer describes them, Mm -hmm. until Agamemnon finally agrees to return the daughter of the Apollo's priest and offers to the god a fitting sacrifice. However, Agamemnon finds it unfair that he, (laughs) as high king, their chieftain, should have his prize taken from him while the lesser kings retain their women, their prizes from war. He then demands that the concubine of Achilles, a girl named Briseus, Briseus.
1: That's how you pronounce it.
0: Briseus, hmm. I'm pretty sure. We'll talk about pronunciations later, but sure. Yeah, okay. It's really half confidence, I think. You just oh, kind of, I agree, totally agree. You just jump into it. Yeah. Briseus be handed over to him. The contention between Agamemnon and Achilles provides the catalyst for the events at the beginning of the Iliad that will shape the entire narrative. <laughs>
1: Right, welcome as we get into book one check us out on the is it yes it is the i almost said a no there's no a great books yeah it is there's the, the great books the, we got it it just like froze did you we're see, good did you see me like <laughs> my, my mind just went panic <laughs> <laughs> a, a
0: good books somewhere yeah. we go somewhere yes, okay so, okay go for it
1: uh, the great books podcast.com that's where you want to go you can uh, support us on patreon patreon.com slash the great books podcast uh, you can get a bunch of really cool free things to help you along the way as we go uh, through all of the great books. Maybe we'll be doing this 20 years down the road. If I'm doing this 20 years down the road, I can't imagine what I'm actually going look, like, to look like, what you're going to look like, This, where we're going to be. We'll be
0: here. We'll be talking about 20 years. We might make it to maybe like the Gospel of John.
1: Oh my goodness. We're going to get there. It's going, okay. we
0: got, but we've got six months on the Iliad, and we're going to make it.
1: All right, yeah, so six months on the Iliad. So, so what's happening here at the very beginning? Like what, like, let, let's, let's set it up. We had the, the intro going in. Uh, why does is, why is Homer just like open up into this, like? seems like just right in the middle of this dadgum story, I don't even understand. Like, there's no introduction. There's nothing uh, to be able to understand. It's very uh, Quentin Tarantino or something, like right in the middle.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful start. It's called in media res. So it's Latin. It's in the middle of the thing, mm-hmm. right? In the middle. So he starts in the middle of a narrative. And so this is, it's a little jarring, but it also captures your imagination, right? I mean, that's, that's the point. Right. So he starts in the middle, and it opens up with just, particularly in the Fagal's translation, right? This, this wonderful opening line of just rage. Goddess, seeing of Peleus' son Achilles. Right, this this rage, mm-hmm. and so we get this as we as we mentioned. Right, it, it opens up, and we we kind of went. The opening gave us basically the first half of the narrative of Book One. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a complicated narrative; it's going back and forth. And so basically, Agamemnon has to give back his slave girl, right, his concubine, right, his prize from war, because she happens to be uh, Chryseis, happens to be the daughter of one of Apollo's priests. So he has to give her back because Apollo is striking all of his men with plagues. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know his men as we kind of find out Apollo are, being a god yeah Apollo's a god right he's one of the Greek gods he's um, associated uh, with the sun with music with archery right so hence the plague we is, even see
1: him uh, in book two be like the form of entertainment at the very end
0: correct so then there's yeah, um, make book three one of the books yeah so he um, yeah so that hence his plague is contextualizes arrows right mm-hmm. we'll see some archers pray to him as well you know if they hit their mark. So there's this contention right at the beginning, right, that's causing this rage inside of Achilles. And we kind of, there's like these soft introductions to the characters. We're trying to figure out who they are. Uh, we have kind of a, a general notion that, like, these are the Greeks, the Achaeans, right? Are, it's another name uh, for the ancient Greeks. They've kind of come over in this, like, federation of groups. Agamemnon is their high king in a kind of loose sense, uh, you can even talk about them kind of being chieftains, right? This is, this is not. We one of the things that we have to stretch our imaginations on when we read Iliad is, uh, you know, and this was a joke when we got together in our small groups. Read the Iliad, right? We we think of the movie Troy, right? Right? Or we think of. Oh
1: man, I was going to do the like the joke at the very beginning, We're scene by scene, where we go through Brad Pitt's <laughs> Troy.
0: Right. So, but it, but it, honestly, one of the things that Troy has in it that that people sometimes don't even realize is incorrect, is what these guys even look like as far as they're like, they're, they're not dressed in classical like Spartan Athenian armor. I mean, these guys are still kind of coming out of a tribal state. And, you know, they are they have horns on their helmet. They look
1: more like Vikings. Yeah, when I
0: read it the first time, because when I read the very first time, like I had this in my head, like, oh, okay, like, you know, these kind of Spartan warrior guys. Or what these,
1: we think of Vikings. It's funny, like right. what we think of Vikings today is what they actually looked like, what the Athenians look like, looked like actually
0: yeah they had a lot more akin with that in certain ways right so they i remember reading it the first time and that these are the images i had in my head of this like you know the movie 300 this kind of like thing going on and then they talk about like their bright armor with tassels and the horns on their helmet and i'm like wait what is what is happening so i think that one way to contextualize this is more of you know these this is a a collection of tribes right Mm -hmm. from ancient greece that's come over Agamemnon is their high king their uh you know Chieftain, their high chieftain, and he's upset now because now he's gotten to this bind. His the girl that he picked happens to be the daughter of one of Apollo's priests. Got choose wisely, bro. Yeah, he's he's made a mistake uh, in his spoils of war, and now he has to give her back. And so this kind of sets this this narrative. That's like the first half of book one that kind of sets the, the the contrast, the foil that we're gonna have to get into the in media res is really interesting and homer makes this famous and then it's copied by
1: just just to make sure we understand in media res can you define that again yeah, like, I, mean, so I know we, i know you mentioned it but like just
0: in the middle of the thing right okay. so he opens up right this isn't he doesn't open up like once upon a time there was this guy and here's who he is and here's this he's from this kingdom you know and then you kind of build this characters and then once you understand the characters then here's like the plot here's the problem that the you know whatever antagonism they have to unravel it's just like he just starts with it. Here's rage, and here's two men that are just raging at each other, right? Mm-hmm. And we're sitting here trying to kind of pick up, like, what's what's going on? And in certain ways, um, you know, this... One, it's it can be... I know some people find it frustrating because they're like, wait, who, who are these people? Like, what am I doing? Like, what am I reading? And in other ways, it really, I think, can build some patience as you read Homer and can be really attentive to the text of when he reveals things and, like, when he doesn't. So, because it has actually a very different effect on us as moderns. So like Homer's audience is already going to be familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. They're going to be familiar with who these people are. They don't really need these introductions. We see in in uh, book two, the kind of formal introductions do come, but they don't really need these at the mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. However, we as moderns, like we're kind of lost. So there's kind of two ways to approach the Iliad. One is, is that, you know you just go back and like you read like an introduction or someone tells you and someone just gives you all of the backstory right because not only is there does he start in, like in the middle of a narrative but also if we can like recall like our introduction introduction to Homer like he didn't invent this story he's taking all of right. these kind of threads from this oral tradition if you will that he's receiving and he's weaving together what is now the Iliad mm-hmm. but at times like the difficulty is sometimes, he doesn't include backstories. Sometimes he won't tell us a backstory until like book 24, the very last one, right? So like, for instance, like we have Hera, a god, we have a goddess, we have Athena, a goddess. They're, you know, on the side of the Achaeans, right? They hate Troy. He doesn't actually tell us why they hate Troy until book 24. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways to go about this. Like one is we just sit here and I'm like, okay, here's all the backstories. Here's everything you need to know, X, Y, and Z right? Uh, Edith Hamilton does this in her mythology book that we recommended, right? She mm-hmm. just sets it right at the beginning and says, hey, by the way, here's the 10 stories you need to know before you get to the Iliad. So when you start, you know exactly what's happening, right? The other way, which is the way that I think we've elected to go, is that we don't do that. Because the problem is that I think if you come in with all these narratives, you become somewhat numb and desensitized to how Homer is expressing them in the text. Mm-hmm. So if he kind of alludes to something, Like, I already know what that story is. And so you miss, like, why is he alluding to it here, right? Or do I need to be looking for this? Or, like, some of the the mystery he builds by people continuing to do things, but we still don't understand what their intention is. So I think what we're going to do as we look at the Iliad is say, okay, when we kind of get to these parts, right, where there's, like, this backstory, there's these ancillary stories, like... Is this something he develops later? If so, like we'll have the patience to wait and mm-hmm. say, okay, why? Like he's building that suspense, right. and we will see. Can we be attentive readers and take a step back and be like, wait, I actually don't know why this character's doing this because it's easy to fall into a rut and not ask those questions,
1: right? Another reason why you should write in your book, right? As I as I've been going through, I actually ask questions in the margins, like, wait, right? Why did Zeus actually will this, or was this a fate? How did this work out? Uh, and then as I'm going and I actually get the answer later on, then I, will, then I can go back and maybe in a different color pen or something like that, answer that question.
0: Right. And so it should bring, I think it forces you to be slightly more attentive to the text on like, okay, do I see this intent or wait, why is this person doing this? And can I wait and see how Homer starts to like answer it? Mm-hmm. However, sometimes we're going to get departs parts in the text, and we'll get to one here in, in book one, that Homer never actually gives us the backstory. So like something's happening. We can tell there's there's tension, but there's no we like he never tells us the backstory. If you've read the Iliad before, you're like, this is this this story is literally not in this book. And if that happens, like we're gonna call it out, we're gonna talk about it, we're gonna give the backstory so like you know, we can all be on the same page about like what's going on. So Agamemnon Thank has one and we'll get into that. So the other thing I think he does that maybe just as like a preliminary challenge to us on him starting like in the middle of the thing, in the in media res is you know what does he actually invoke the muses which we'll have to ask like who those are but he actually what does he actually invoke the muses to do and i think this is something to really pay attention to he doesn't actually invoke the muses to tell us the story of the fall of troy he invokes the muses to tell the story of the rage of achilles and i think that should actually maybe challenge a few of our presumptions about what this book is actually about
1: yeah, that's a good point, because as we go, you know, Achilles, as you will see, actually drops off in the story for a little while.
0: Right. So it, I think and there's some challenges here about, like, who's actually the protagonist, mm-hmm. right? Who's the hero? Um, are there, you know, we come to this text, you know, as moderns, we, always, we come very critically to texts, and we're always trying to show, like, you know, we, we think we're smarter than everybody. We have iPhones. We can Google things, et cetera. Like, what, what does Homer have anything to teach us? Here, right, on Ascend, the Great Books podcast, we're going to approach Homer as the teacher, right? I'm not the teacher. You're not the teacher, right? We're right. approaching Homer. Just trying to figure it out. Yeah, we're approaching Homer as a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I would view, like, my role as just, like, a student that's already taken the class before, mm-hmm. right? And so then I'm here to help, and I'm also here to learn. Right. So... You know, we'll kind of get into, um, you know, when he starts in media res, I think it's just going to challenge us to ask, like, okay, is this actually about the fall of Troy? Like, what are my presumptions here? Why does he invoke the muses to tell us about the rage of Achilles? Like, right. is that the actual thesis or not? So it's just a lot of things in Homer. We're not going to resolve the issue. We're going to flag them. and We're going to keep them as like something that we're tracking. Right. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. So who are... I was going to ask you that. That's what I was no, no, I was going to ask no, you this is the, how the This is how the podcast works. <laughs> I ask you all the hard questions, and then you ask me something about... Good. Well, get know. ready,
0: because I'm going to ask you how to pronounce some of these names here no, pretty I'm quick. Great. Yeah. Well, so, it's going be fun. Okay, so let's talk about the muses. Yeah. I, the muses, I think, are just a, a, a beautiful tradition. I think they really are. So the muses are daughters of Zeus, and there are nine of them, right? Three threes. And there are nine of them. And in short... Um, And they kind of develop over time and they're assigned different things and et cetera. But in short, the muses are invoked, right, for inspiration. They inspire the poet, the bard, right, to bring to memory, to tell him, to literally speak through him this story, right, this this story of these great deeds of their people here, the Iliad, right? So the muses, right, are these goddesses and they're going to inspire people, um, you know, so you have just like a few of them, like in the guide, we really get deep into this into like their names and et cetera. But for instance, like you have a muse of history of astronomy, of tragedy, of comedy, of dance, epic poetry, love poetry, songs to the gods and lyric poetry. So there's these nine muses, right? And so this actually comes, it's really interesting. This comes heavily into English of like, the muses and their influence on our language and what it means uh, to invoke their inspiration. Mm -hmm. This is where, um, so if you look at etymology, right, etymology being the study of words and their their origins, if you look at muse, you have uh, to be amused, right? We find Mm -hmm. something amusing, or this is my amusement, right? I'm I'm inspired. Uh, Music comes Mm -hmm. from this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Museum. Yeah, museum, that was one that that, uh, I thought was fascinating, right? This is where we put all the things that people were inspired to make, right? So we're we're inspired by the muses, Mm -hmm. and here's the thing where we put all the things that people have been inspired to make, right? Mm -hmm. So he gets this invocation of the muses, and I think um, this is another thing to flag insofar as he does it right at the beginning, which makes sense, but other points in the text, he's going to invoke the muses, and if he does that, we need to stop and ask why, why is this in such an important part that he has to say, like muses, right? To pray to them, say, please inspire me, right? Okay. This also, um, just for those, like you know, as we look at the great books and we're looking at the overall tradition, Homer sets everything up for other epic poems throughout the West. So, uh, for instance, um, you're going to get with Virgil in the Aeneid, right? The Roman, uh, it's a it's a Roman um, epic poem, like it's basically a Roman version of the Odyssey, he's gonna invoke the muses at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dante, when he has his divine comedy, right, in all three of those, he's going to invoke the muses at the beginning. Um, You know, even uh, John Milton, right, in Paradise Lost, in in that uh, epic, he's going to invoke the muses. So Homer, again, as we look to Homer as like the beginning of the great books in a lot of ways, he's setting Mm -hmm. a lot of things here that are now templates. If you write epic poetry, Mm -hmm. you invoke the muses, right? And I think there's, too, a lot of—you can make a lot of comparisons here and spend a lot of time on, uh, I think, the Holy Spirit as a perfection of the muses, sure. right? That which amuses us, right? That which actually uh, recalls this memory to us and allows uh, to speak through us, right? So I think you, you have somewhat of a pagan foreshadowing here uh, that's perfected by the Holy Spirit.
1: Okay, so uh, book one, you know, we open up with this rage, understanding that this is a book about Achilles— uh, and it talks about Zeus a little bit, and then it introduces King Agamemnon right. uh, immediately, as you kind of mentioned, uh, that he didn't choose wisely and that uh, he chose a, uh, a, a priest's daughter. Uh, but as we go through, maybe it's good to introduce Ag- Agamemnon, a key character in uh, the Iliad. So who is, who is King Agamemnon?
0: Yeah, so he is, I mean, as we know now, right, so we'll kind of track, so it just says like the preliminaries, right, I think we're going to, just like a few things we can say about him, like we mentioned, like he's basically the high king of this loose federation of uh, Greek city-state tribes, Mm -hmm. he's a chieftain, Um, he is the brother of Menelaus, who we'll be introduced to, who's the king of Sparta.
1: It goes by several different names in here that, that is a little confusing. We'll get to that.
0: Right. Sometimes, sometimes characters will be called by their father's names, and so sometimes that um, you got to pay attention and make sure you're tracking who the same person is. So, but Agamemnon, like, so okay. So let's just look at a little bit of his character. So if you look at line, so we're book one. Mm-hmm. If you look around line like one thirty in your text. Okay. So here, um, Agamemnon is we sh- we should saw sh- less than happy that he has to give up Crisius right but he has like if you read this uh he has this line here that probably stood out to a lot of people right so he says at 130 he says you know that glittering price for the young girl crisis indeed i prefer her by far the girl herself i want her uh mine in my own house i rank her higher than clyde to Nistra, my wedded wife She's nothing less in build or breeding, in mind or works of hand. But I'm willing to give her back, even if that's the best for all. What I really want is to keep my people safe, not seeing them dying, but fetch me another prize, and straight off too, else I alone of the Argives go without my honor. The Argives being here, another name for the ancient Greeks. That would be a disgrace. You are all my witnesses. Look, my prize is snatched away. So... Yeah. So, good king Agamemnon. Oh man. You know, he's as we're kind of introduced to his character, right? So, he's an interesting man to watch his rhetoric. So, he's he's like, "Well, you know, what a
1: servant leader he is." <laughs>
0: right. So, he's just like, "Listen, guys, I like this slave girl more than my own wife, but She's I'll like give standing her up." Right, here too. right. And uh, you know, brutal. You know, we'll uh, you know, I'll give her up but you then someone lesser than me, right? Because the high king can't be stripped of his prize while the lesser kings have theirs. But there's a, there's a side narrative here. So we just kind of warned about this, right? There's a, there's a uh, an, we call them ancillary stories, right? These marginal uh, stories that Homer doesn't actually ever tell us about Agamemnon. And I, I think it's worth mentioning because the relationship between Agamemnon and his wife is something that will develop throughout the texts. So
1: if you look at the Iliad and probably the probably isn't going to go well, based off of uh, just that sentence.
0: Yeah, you can you can tie it. You can take a few takeaways from their relationship, right, right? About how this is going, and so it's not it's not it's a slow burn here, right? It's something that's going to simmer, but it's something that we should flag and say, okay, how does he talk about his wife? And it's an ancient burn. An ancient burn. Yeah, very good, very good, <laughs> and so. Um, this is the problem with the people listening to this who can't see the faces that I give you <laughs> when you make puns and stuff. So anyway, they'll just miss out. But there is, okay, so one thing though I do want to is to parse out his character is um, take a little detour as a side story that tells us kind of who he is and what it's come um, kind of like his character in coming to do this, right? Because okay. okay. Homer never tells us this, but I think it actually like plays into this. So when when they were on their way, to Troy. So you, and we, by the way, we don't even know yet why they're in Troy or why they've launched their war against Troy. Right. right. So this is again, that, that in media, all we know is there's
1: tension between Achilles and Agamemnon. And yeah,
0: we Yeah. Supposedly there are Trojans and they're supposed to be fighting Troy, but right, right. now we have there's all these internal strife. Right now. Correct. So they're on their way to Troy. And so they, they have this kind of, this famous, you know, thousand fleet ship, if you will. And so basically the, this, the long story short is the Achaeans, uh, uh, harbor, they anchor on this island, and uh, one of the men, I mean, there's a lot of them, uh, decides to kill a rabbit to eat, right, is my understanding. However, what he doesn't know is that the uh, rabbit is sacred to Artemis, uh, who is a goddess. She's the goddess of the hunt. Uh, she's associated uh, with the moon. She's somewhat famous. the um, hunter
1: doesn't understand this, that the goddess of hunt of hunters think that rabbits are like the important one. Well, she it's kind Crazy. of like it's
0: it's kind of like her rabbit, right? Ah, so like you've, okay. you have, you have it's kind of like you've trespassed on the king's deer here, um, except the king in this scenario is an incredibly brutal, vengeful goddess. Right? Okay. So she she's kind of famous for this of you know yeah uh, you know she's always off in the woods and doing these things and etc. And it doesn't take a whole lot to make Artemis angry um, in her in her narratives. So here we, when someone kills a rabbit, and basically she just changes the winds, and the sh- the fleet, this thousand fleet, um, ship fleet can't leave, and so they just oh, they're just stuck, they're just there. stuck there, right? Because I mean, you think about the time period, right? This is I mean, right. these, these they have There's to go no with the wind. Exactly, very good, like shocking, right? So they can't just pour the gasoline in, right. So they're stuck, like yeah. they are stuck. So they have Calchas; uh, he's their prophet. Like they're always turning to him and say, "Hey, what's going on?" So he discerns and he prophesies. This is what's happened, right? So that someone did this, etc. And Artemis, obviously a proportional uh, thing here for the rabbit, is that Artemis says, "Okay, well, I will forgive you, but you have to sacrifice the daughter of Agamemnon. So you have to have a human sacrifice. So you have wow. to. Agamemnon's the high king. You have to go and do this, and this leads just to." A brutal story and so this is in our guide but i, I want to read it to you because it is um it, i don't know i found it moving so the big problem here right is that his daughter's not with him right obviously his yeah, daughter yeah she's yeah. not coming on the war fleet right so where is she well she's back home so how does he get his daughter to come to the island right because he's supposed to be off at well, war he's not
1: going to tell her the truth
0: right So, like, how does he do this? So what Agamemnon comes up with, and this kind of goes into his character, but also the character of, I think, the armies in general, the Achaeans, is that then he tells his daughter, like, hey, and his wife, right? So the wife has to release the daughter. So this is kind of what we're exploring, right? It's a relationship between uh, him and his wife. Is he says, hey, I have arranged a marriage between, you know, our daughter and Achilles, Okay. Now we don't quite know yet, but like Achilles, we know there's something big about him, right? The rage, but like I think it's safe to say at the moment, like one of the top warlords in Greece, right? He's one of the top guys, right? We can track that much so far. So this is a big deal. So she comes to the island.
1: Think she's going to get married to some war god?
0: Yeah, that she is. She is here. She's made it. Like she's going to be his bride. Like mm. he's taking her as a bride. Happily she, ever after. Right? She comes ready. And so um, she basically shows up, like, in her wedding dress to the wedding, but the wedding is actually her sacrifice. Man. And so Edith Hamilton records uh, the ancient authors, and they, they read, In all her prayers, cries of Father, Father, her maiden life, these they held as nothing, the savage warriors battle mad. And so they kill her. They sacrifice her. And so then that's a that, so then, father. yeah, so he's not the best. And so then Artemis says that's sufficient and she changes the winds and they go on to Troy. So just like a, it's a side, he never mentions this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the problems with these narratives too, just as like a caveat, not to like muddy the waters too much, but like Homer had a certain amount of like editorial like Latitude, when he decided what stories to include in the actual Iliad. Mm-hmm. And so we know of some of these stories because then later playwrights after Homer will include them in their narratives. Right, And then sometimes there's a lot of debate about how much is that narrative, one that Homer didn't include, how much did it develop after him, like where did it come from, et cetera. But I think it's worth mentioning, particularly as the tradition looks back on Agamemnon and his relationship between his family, and also then what he was willing to do to take down Troy. Right. What was he willing to and do? He was willing
1: to sacrifice his own daughter.
0: Right. So like, it L- kind of goes
1: lie, in. Lie to his wife, sacrifice his own daughter. I mean, then didn't say like, this uh, w- <laughs> this war booty that I got is better than my own wife. Like, right. uh, what a stud of a man.
0: Yeah. So we're, we're kind of going into here just a little bit of like, what is that? was facetious, by the way. Right. Obviously. Yeah, we got it. Um, but, like, who's the character? Like, what, what is the character of these individuals, right? What's the character of the Achaeans? Like, are these the good guys? Are they the bad guys? Like, how are they being presented? And also, like, what is Homer trying to show us in these things, right? So this is Agamemnon. This is the leader of the Achaeans, right? The
1: first uh, ten lines. hmm You know, you have this immediate opening of suffering, death of warriors, of dishonoring the fallen soldiers. Um. And then right there, it says the will of uh, the will of Zeus. This is uh, on what about probably one, two, three, four, five, line five or six. It says the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting there thinking like, man, all these bad things are happening. Is this actually Zeus willing it, willing all the suffering? Or is this just a passive will or is this an active will? Uh I thought that was very interesting. I guess so. That's a good question to maybe um, piggyback on. Is like so, what is the role of the gods here in this in in this book?
0: The Greek gods, I think, that one of the best ways to look at them is they they are basically they're immortal, mm-hmm. right? Um, very powerful, but in almost all other ways are human. So like they're susceptible to all of the same terrible faults we are, and if anything, they actually exhibit them more than we do. Right? right? So they're jealous. They're prone to envy. They can be deceived. They can be you know, tricked. They can you know, have bravado. They, can, like, they have their own vice and virtue.
1: So yeah, these peaks and valleys of character.
0: Yeah. And, so, and they can be very fickle as well, which is something that Iliad shows, uh, shows quite well, actually. So these, these immortals, right? They live on Mount Olympus. Uh, the king of the gods is Zeus, right? He's the king of the gods. And we'll kind of have to play out his character some too. His wife is Hera. She makes uh, an appearance. White-haired. white uh, White-armed, white, white armed, yeah. White-armed. Oh, white-armed Hera uh, for her uh, epithet. And um, and then we also get, um, you know, all this other host of, of gods that are coming out. So Hera's going to be his wife. We're going to figure out who Athena is, right? She's loosely associated. You know, we could say right now maybe a working definition is like wisdom. She's also very much like on the Achaean side, so like what's, what's happening with her. Um, and so these gods one way to look at them is they they kind of personify certain attributes so say athena is going to be um you know wisdom um, i think it pushes into some things about war that we can also look at mm-hmm. uh, Ares is going to come up he's going to be the god of war aphrodite is going to come up she's going to be the goddess of love uh hera is uh, if i recall correctly the goddess of uh, you know mothers and expected mothers, childbirth, things like this. So ironically, that, we'll
1: we'll talk about that later. Right.
0: Some yeah, somewhat ironically, given her temperaments and what she does. So they all have the little patronages, if if we want to borrow that term, mm-hmm. and they're all very much prone to fault. Zeus, then it's kind of we. I think we need to make some distinctions with Zeus. Okay. So Zeus, uh, all the gods, for I mean, just broadly speaking. Um, all the gods could try and fight against Zeus, and he's still going
1: to win. He's that powerful.
0: Yeah, so he is like the king of the gods, and he rules through this power. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions, and I, I think you raise it well, is not only who the gods, but like what what is their role? Like what what do they what do they do? How they play in the Iliad? Mm-hmm. And you talked about the will of Zeus in the opening. So one of the things that we're going to have to track is uh, the relationship between the divine will of these gods and the human will and human action. And this kind of starts to form in the West a perennial question of what is the relationship and free will between the will of the gods or, say, you know, in monotheism, God, Mm -hmm. and the will of man and his actions. Are we actually free? Do we actually have a free will? How do we do this? And the Iliad is great at bringing these questions up because over and over again, we're going to see the gods are going to come down, they're going to reveal themselves, they're going to send people dreams, they're going to do all these different things, and one of the questions is going to be, okay, um, did the person really have a choice like, do the gods, like, right. are they are is these there free
1: will? Like, are yeah. they giving them free will? Or like, are, are these all just, it? like,
0: you know, empty, um, you know, empty kind of uh, puppets? Like, is it really just 100% the will of the gods? Do the humans have to be receptive to it? Right. Who can see the gods and who can't? So this is a question that we're going to track. I mean, this is a question that, that goes all the way up into and still continues in Christianity, right, mm-hmm. of what is the relationship between our free will and that of God? Mm-hmm. And so here... We're seeing uh, a, pre- a pagan precursor to that as they try to figure out what's their relationship to Athena, Zeus, you know, things like this. So, and also the other thing is they're bodily, right? So like they have yeah. to they have to like come down, right? They have to come down and see what's going on. Uh, you know, if Hera wants to stop something, you know, she's like, "Get in the chariot, we're going!" Right, and she has to like go down. So they're they're very
1: bodily. Um, you know, so sometimes they're good at hiding themselves and their identity. Sometimes they're terrible at hiding their identity, depending on who, who sees them. They're not,
0: um, yeah, so they're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. Um, you know, Zeus, I think has some more of those attributes than others, but yeah, it's actually somewhat reminiscent if you look at like, if you paid attention to like the, the first 10 or 11 books of Genesis, like this is actually how God is talked about in Genesis, right? So if you think about like, God has to like walk in the garden, Right, he's mm. like, Adam, where are That's you? A good point. If you look at a uh, uh, Tower of Babel is another one, right? Mm-hmm. God's like, I think something's going on down there, right? So then him and the angels have to come down and they see what's going on. So like, there's this kind of like <laughs> early stage of the divinities of like, you know, are they bodily? Are they do they have to do they move in a place? How's this work? Um, so Homer, as we kind of track these perennial questions, is going to ask us a lot of like. What are What is divine, right? What does it mean to be divine? What does it mean to be a god or a mm-hmm. goddess, right? That's going to start branching and opening up some of these questions. And then what is the relationship between that divine will uh, and the will of men, I think, is another one.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as I read that beginning, I instantly thought, oh, well, he, Zeus is bad. This is, he's an evil man. He's an evil, evil god.
0: And you thought that because you attribute the the negatives there to his will. Yeah, I mean,
1: uh, and and maybe that's just a misread on my part. But you know, he's ta- they're talking about like these great fighter souls, and mm-hmm. and, and then how their bodies are, are desecrated, like to the feast of birds and dogs, and like, you know, uh, one thing we'll be tracking is just how important it is to bury the dead, right? You know, and and dead soldiers, and so like, you know that this is that's the case, and it just seemed like. Well, if that's the will of the Zeus of Zeus, then he's not a good god.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna have to look at. Um, yeah, I think there's a question of of Zeus's nature, right? Is he is he good? Is he bad? Is, are those proper categories for right. Zeus at all?
1: Again, I'm coming into this blind. This no, which is, is good, Zeus.
0: and I think we're we're raising good questions. Um, you know, other ones are: is there anything higher than Zeus?
1: Right. Is, yeah, Zeus, is, is Zeus having to, like? Is he being uh, formed or, or conformed to a certain higher good? Or a higher, a higher will. Like uh, again, is he passive or active in this will? Like, is, mm-hmm. um, is fate higher than what he? Can he? Is it already set?
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's the one that I think we're going to see, and the commentators uh, differ on, is is Zeus subject to fate, and we'll see that right because the will of Zeus is moving towards its end. And, you know, how much of men's actions are fated? And so, but is Zeus himself also subject to a fate? And we're Mm going to see some narratives here that call into question of like, wait, is he doing what he wants to, or is there something that he's like following? The other thing I would note too, for anyone who's like read the Greek plays, or, you know, hopefully, you know, we're going to read them as well as we kind of move through the great books... You know, and you also see this with, like, Shakespeare, right? You see these personalities that are just obsessive, right? It's like, okay, at any time, you could have made a rational choice to stop this cascading thing of terrible choices, and right. you have not, and now it's all ending up in a tragedy, right? A lot of that stereotypes begins here in the Iliad. So you're going to have people like Agamemnon who will not bend, right? Yeah, and
1: you're just like, dude, just give it up.
0: Right. You're going to see, you know, how Achilles responds. You're going to see how the gods respond. These kind of deeply obsessive... Personalities, mm-hmm. and this becomes um, a stereotype—not like in a negative way, but as a, a type, if you will, throughout the West in our literature. Of and, they, and it's usually always in tragedies, right? And they're just going to drill themselves down into a hole mm-hmm. until then, whatever the terrible thing is, happens. Happens, right? Sure. So the, these gods and these characters end up being uh, kind of a foreshadowing of that that's going to happen in the West.
1: Okay, so Agamemnon uh, is reluctantly giving up his. Uh, prize, but then he says something like, you know, well, I, I, I got to have something else. If you're going to take this away from me, I, you know, I I, still have to be given something. I'm not going to let my my soldiers, uh, you know, the people underneath me, have this, uh, the, the spoils of war, and then I go empty-handed.
0: Right. Yeah, so let's look at, so when we open the podcast, usually we're always going to open with a summary narrative of the entire book. Right, right. Just, just. So, if you read it, you're like, I want to make sure I tracked well. If you've got a million things going on, you're like, I can't read the book right now. But I want to, you know, follow along. That's great. Like, we're going to have these narrative summaries at the beginning. Right. Book, book one is complicated enough that we basically did half. Right. So now we need to pick up, like kind of like where we left off. Mm-hmm. So if you look around, let's look around line uh, two ten. Okay. Okay. So this is where, so Agamemnon has to decide then what you know, whose prize does he take, right? So he's he's lost Chryseus, and now it's like, what prize do uh, I take? Well, the person who was trying to convince him that he needs to just go ahead and do what he needs to do and return the girl to the gods, uh, one of those is Achilles, right. right? One of the Greek warlords that's mm-hmm. there too. And so Agamemnon turns around, and so a l- little bit above 2.10, right? He's talking, um, he's talking to Achilles, and he says, You, I hate you most of all, the warlords, loved by the gods, always dear to your heart, strife, yes, and battles, the bloody grind of war. What if you are a great soldier? That's just a gift of God. Go home with your ships and comrades, lorded over your Myrmidons. You are nothing to me, you and your overweening anger, and so then when he, you skip down a few lines, what he does is he's going to take Bryseus. Bryseus is the concubine that Achilles has. Right. Right. So the high king doesn't have his prize. Right. He's he signs this unfitting. So he's going to take right uh, Achilles' uh, prize. So he and says. And the reason
1: why he's he's saying like he hates him the most is right, is because Achilles is threatening to leave. He's basically saying like, if you don't give her up. Then I'm leaving. Yeah, I mean, he's he's calling out
0: Agamemnon's pride here, right? And he's he's playing kind of a front role on this. And what we see there too, I think a, a preliminary question could be: Is he is Agamemnon more worried about getting his prize back, or whom he takes
1: it from? Right, that's a good question. Right, I think it, we, and it's very clear.
0: Right, so we have to if we look down here, uh, just above two twenty, he actually says he's going to take Briseis. And then he explains why he says, so you can learn just how much greater I am than you and next man up may shrink from matching words with me from hoping to rival Agamemnon strength for strength. So basically like I am tired of you. I hate you more than any of the other Greek warlords, Mm -hmm. right? Here you are in my face again, challenging my authority Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm going to take your girl to teach you a lesson and to teach the entire army a lesson. Right. So you, I'm greater than you. You need to realize that. And also, no one else is going to come up and speak to me the same way you just did because they don't want to have their stuff taken away.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So this is his wielding his authority.
0: Yeah. So this is, again, we're kind of getting into Agamemnon's uh, leadership style. Now, Achilles, you know, we haven't had our like formal introduction yet, but he is like probably the most. I mean, he, not probably, he is the most skilled warlord amongst the Greeks, and we'll kind of see why.
1: But Even, he, even by Agamemnon's standards.
0: Right. So we're talking about, if we're just talking about sheer, like, you know, martial prowess, mm-hmm. right? Who could go on there and slaughter the most men? This right. is Achilles, by far. And so, what happens? Achilles is just going to kill him, right? He's just going to draw his sword, right? It says that, you know, he has his sword swung at his hip, and, you know, should he thrust through all the ranks and kill Agamemnon now? So, again, how's this book open up? Rage. Sing of the rage. So he's just going to kill him. He's just going to kill his own king, and we're done. And the whole War of Troy probably just ends, and we're over, right? Um, we're not
1: going to go 500 pages deep. We'll be, <laughs> right. we'll be 84 pages in, and... And we're done. Yep.
0: Right? So here we get an interesting narrative that I think is worth mentioning, and it has a few layers that we should um, kind of dig through. So Athena comes, right, vaulting uh, through the heavens, right, swept Athena. So we're down around like 230 because the white-armed goddess Hera sped her down. Athena and Hera are always going to be caring for the Achaeans, right? They, they want to make sure they thrive. You can't have this infighting. You certainly can't have Achilles slaughter their own high king. And so she comes down, and she has one of the themes with Athena, right, this goddess of wisdom is the terrible blazing of those eyes. Her eyes are mentioned all the time, mm-hmm. her blazing eyes. She also characteristically has gray eyes, right, when they're not talked about being on fire. And I think this, you know, the eyes, particularly as we go into the West and particularly we go into like the writings of Plato a couple centuries later, you know, the eyes are deeply associated with the intellect, right? So it's interesting, uh, and we can always speculate, good point. Where, yeah. does this, where does this actually start? Um, this kind of connection, this uh, um, analog between the eyes and the intellect. But it is notable, I think here, that Athena, the goddess of wisdom, mm-hmm. is also characterized very much by her eyes. And shes they're going to play a prominent part. She comes down with the terrible blazing eyes. Uh, we see a little after 240, like 241, her gray eyes clear. The goddess Athena answered, Down from the skies I come to check your rage, if only you will yield. She says that Hera has sent her, she ends that little paragraph after 250 saying, you need to obey us both, and Achilles does, and he obeys.
1: Right. Yeah, he even says, if a a man obeys the gods, they're quick to hear his prayers. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know if this is the case or not, but when I first read that, I thought, well, is it because he actually wants to do the right thing, or is it because he's wanting to, you know, uh, put a little bit in his pocket to be able to to spend later on with the gods, you know, be able to to get some some credit for the gods.
0: Well, let's push into that. So what would what do you mean by would he do the right thing? How how do the ancient Greeks even decide what is, what the, is right the right thing? thing?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a good, I mean that's a good question, right? right?
0: Yeah. I mean if we had to do that, I think on some preliminaries, or at least even in the classical Greeks, right, we're gonna be talking about virtue. We're mm-hmm. talking about, oh, okay, like we mentioned, you know, about when the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture came together, like they shared the same list of the natural virtues, right? Prudence, right. justice, temperance, and fortitude. We talk about these virtues. It's something to watch and observe here that we take note of that virtue, that virtue language is very nascent in Homer. It's mm-hmm. it's just kind of percolating in its beginning. And it's not entirely clear what is meant by virtue. So, like, one point we could look at is virtue in the Greek is arete, right? And the etymology of that word, again, the study of the word, where does it come from, um, is arguably, there's other theories, but there's arguably it's connected to Ares, the god of war. So, virtue is like, so who's the most virtuous person? Well, Achilles, why is he the most virtuous person? Because he can go slaughter all the other men, Right. right? He has an excellence in combat, right? Right. Is, is that And is that what Homer means by virtue? Right.
1: And, yeah, and I mean, actually, the, the question is answered just a couple lines on down. Like, this is this, that was my first thought, right? And then a, a, at 262 or so, he basically says, uh, but Achilles rounded uh, on Agamemnon once again, lashing out at him, not relaxing his anger for a moment. You know, so it's mm-hmm. not like he actually, there's this, like, piety. It's just like he just obeys authority, and then all of a sudden he looks back at from a deity to a, to a human person again, all of a sudden the the rage just uh, like engulfs him yet again.
0: Right. Yeah. There's not like um you know you know post like Christ like Sermon on the Mount. We would talk about like you know these you know you you know I say you know you shall not murder, but if you you know hate your brother, right? Right. You're, you know, also guilty. And the way, what we see is in the New Testament, this moving of morality of virtue into your interior life, mm-hmm. right? So it's not enough to just abstain from doing an evil. You have to actually have to take a good into your interior life as well and to abstain from that, abstain from hatred. Yeah, these are... So some of the things... Obviously, we do not see that with Achilles. Right. Um, and so part of this is, you know, we could just sit here and be like, you idiots, like, you know, we know so much more than you, you know, et cetera. I think a better way to read this is this is the beginning of the conversation on virtue. And that's what we need to track. This is the beginning of the conversation of what it means to be a virtuous man. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to see later in the text is that we have Achilles. We're going to have our example of sheer, like, martial prowess, sheer skill. We have that as Achilles, but he's going to be contrasted with someone that, from our point of view, is gonna seem much more like what we would think is the virtuous character. And some of the questions are like, are they being, is Homer contrasting them on purpose? Is he like, is he as a teacher, is he trying to teach us something? So you bring up a good point of, we need to watch virtue. We need to watch what it means to be good mm-hmm. and who gets praised and what this means. And also there's a distinction, is there a distinction between say, Agamemnon's view, Achilles' view, the Achaean's view, and is Homer trying to teach us something? Because remember, mm-hmm. he's taking a story that's already several centuries old, right. and telling it to a new audience, his, his, um, the audience of his day? And is he trying to teach them something about what their forefathers thir- thought of virtue, right? Mm-hmm. I think these are good questions. Let's also look at. Um, we talked a lot about earlier, one of the perennial questions that we need to kind of track is the relationship between the divine will and the human will. And here I think we saw a small but very key aspect of this. We're going to get lots of examples, but if you go back to like a little after 2:40, right? She heard she have there's a gray eyes again. Uh, Athena, you know, answers, "Down from the skies I came to check your rage if only you will yield." He has to assent to her, mm-hmm. right? So get back to this like are the are the humans just like the playthings of the gods, like, you know, can, is there something here, they have to be receptive to it? So here, I think with Achilles, which, you know, he uh, is a slightly different example, and we'll see why in a minute, but he, at least one, recognizes Athena. He recognizes the divine will. He recognizes being, that he's being worked upon. Mm-hmm. And uh, two, he does yield, and he's obedient to it. Mm-hmm. Right now, as you mentioned, like, it, it might be for simply like, I understand the gods are fickle. And I want to obey the gods because if I don't obey the gods, they don't, you know, they don't hear bless. my prayers. Yeah, they don't hear my prayers. They don't bless me. But I think if we just extrapolate from that, what's the relationship between the divine and human? Here we see the divine moving on man, but man has to be receptive to it,
1: right? He's and not he, even forced. If he's reluctant to it. Like he would not even if it says he would not fight the orders of Athena. He's not going to. He doesn't want to do it, but he mm-hmm. just knows I have to do this. And he, then, and then immediately, as soon as again, as soon as he sees it, uh, Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. he's full of rage again
0: yeah he just goes it's like three lines down yeah he calls him uh, on like 270 he calls him the king who devours his people which, which is a wonderful is, yeah. a wonderful phrase
1: I mean and it's accurate he he gave up his daughter
0: that's true so I mean there's I think again we see that ancillary narrative kind of haunting behind this now I I don't think Achilles was like some poor sap that got suckered into um you know <laughs> The do- like, I don't think Achilles like didn't know what was happening. Right. Right. Um, when they sacrificed Agamemnon's daughter, but it was Agamemnon's choice. And unfortunately too, it's not the last time that we'll see human sacrifice come out in the Iliad. Hmm. Right. The other thing too, just before we leave this section, is, you know, when we read a great text, um, we talked a little bit about like, you know, making notes and, and having, I think, really the fortitude to just mark in your book, like, don't be afraid, mark in your book, track who's speaking, track major points, put asterisks here. Um, and really what you're doing there is you're really tracking the literal, right? The li- like, what does the text just say? Am I tracking the different characters? Things like this. The other one, though, every once in a while, the literal uh, will give way to uh, more of a uh, allegorical reading, right? Are, are we seeing two things that come together uh, say, Athena and Achilles, that are there's more than just a literal happening here. There's also an a allegorical level in which we see that these two things, uh, as we talk about allegory, stands as a type, right? They stand of two different types. Mm-hmm. So we said Athena, right, she represents wisdom, right? She stands as a type of wisdom. So when we see her act, we should also kind of think to ourselves, like, is this wisdom acting in this? And is that telling us something? And here, I think it's notable that Achilles, who very clearly symbolizes rage, mm-hmm. right? We very clearly see that for Achilles to make the prudent choice, right? Rage is tempered by wisdom. That's what we see in here, right? Hmm. We, see, we see that uh, rage is tempered by wisdom to produce a prudent choice. Okay. So I think we can kind of see this, and the gods kind of lend themselves to this because they stand for things. So we can always ask ourselves, like, okay, this god's doing this, does this lead to some kind of... Uh, you know, allegorical read, or even um, you know, just a an analog, a, an analogy here that we're seeing play out. Which I think the I don't think the Iliad is an allegorical text. Usually, what we mean by that, we mean like everything in this text, as all these different types, all are combined into one giant narrative, right? And this this one whole narrative is a an analogy or an allegory for this whole other narrative. Mm-hmm. So think of like Narnia, right? Here is Aslan, the very clear Jesus resurrecting lion, right? right? And these, this is their path of holiness, and he's dying on the altar, and like, like right. that's very clearly an allegory, right? Like everything right. here is pointing to this very thing, e- yeah, right? Very easy to pin. That as way. opposed to probably the most famous distinction to C.S. Lewis's Narnia is Tolkien. Tolkien doesn't write as an allegory. Lord of the Rings is not an allegory overall, right? Mm-hmm. The types don't aren't like set where they always resolve the same way, but he does have moments that are deeply um uh analogical, right? That these two things serve as a an analogy or an analogue to something. So for instance, if you recall um Aragorn with Boromir when he's dying, like that scene very clearly denotes like a confession scene, right? Aragorn's playing like a Christ-like figure. Hmm. But later on, like Aragorn doesn't you know, die on the table for our sins, right? So it's not an allegory. He doesn't keep that type throughout the entire narrative. I see. But as an allegory would, but uh, a lot of times in the West, uh, and we'll see this with Homer, is we see these analogies. Two things are interacting that also represent larger things. Here we see wisdom and rage.
1: Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Okay, good. Then we get old man Nestor.
0: Yeah, we like Nestor. So tell us a little bit about Nestor.
1: Yeah, so when I first read, like, this is the first introduction about 290s, where, where, where he's introduced into the scene, uh, and he is a, he is a man who is uh, he's an old man, very clearly, but he also is very good. He's very prudent. He has wisdom. Uh, like, he, he's one that that, that Agamemnon will, will will go to and actually listen to pretty like relatively well, um, even whenever he's not wanting to. We'll see that we'll see this um, played throughout, but. Uh, he used to be a, a warrior, and he has a lot of experience, and so whenever he speaks, he's speaking from wisdom, he's speaking from experience, um, and he gives uh, sound advice.
0: hmm Yeah, I mean, he plays, he plays that prudent role. I think he has kind of that uh, primordial uh, maxim that age equals wisdom.
1: Right, absolutely. And Father, so, a father-like figure, almost. Yeah.
0: He's the oldest of the of the Achaean warlords mm-hmm. and he's also this really interesting uh, link to a mythical past So it's funny because we think of the Iliad being very mythical because like Athena just showed up right. right but even for them they already have this notion and he actually kind of gets into that right after that when he talks about Theseus and like like he recalls an age where men were so much greater
1: yeah, yeah that's right? right. So it's interesting
0: that like even in the Iliad, which we think is like, this is ancient history, the classical Greeks thought it was ancient history. Mm-hmm. The Greeks in the Iliad are talking about like, hey, men used to be much stronger. They used to be much better. Like our ancients were this mythical time. And Nestor plays like this bridge, mm-hmm. right? He's old enough to remember that. And so typically uh, Nestor will go on some very long monologues. Mm-hmm. uh, talking about how great things were back then. And by the way, all of you suck right. and you need to get back in there and get back into the war. Right. So um, he, he, he loves kind of throwing out this criticism. Uh, World
1: War Two grandpa-esque.
0: Yes. Like he plays that role. It's like back in my day. Right. Right. So he's, he's the uphill in the snow, both ways going to school kind of guy.
1: Mm-hmm. I um, like him though. Like what that it was the first character that was, that Homer has introduced. Really? That I was like, Hey, I like this guy. <laughs> um, uh, he, he's He was enjoyable he, and he builds up his credibility he, like he does go on like mm-hmm. he has these like really long monologues right where it's almost like a whole page or, or a page and a half of a monologue. But I think it's important that he does this especially for the reader um, for the first time being introduced to Nestor because he it's showing Homer is showing the credibility of who he is in his character
0: right yeah and he's he's always ready with some wisdom. He is, he is ready to give it, and yeah. he'll pop up, you know, uh, several times.
1: So I don't know what happens to Nestor, but I like him so far.
0: That's good. No, that's good. Okay, so then we get, um, so then the, the problem has to resolve, and so we get uh, Odysseus, so he's another warlord. Uh, he's the king of Ithaca. He's on the Achaean side. Um, he has, so if we're just kind of just looking for working reputations, summaries... He's known as being a tactician. He's known for being very. Um, he has great rhetoric, right? He's kind of a mastermind.
1: Now, when I read this, uh, so I have you have Nestor, who's good at telling stories, good, at, you know, has this credibility. He's he's uh, an orator, and then you then you see Odysseus, and he they also talk about how he's a great rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I thought Odysseus was more of a guy who could rally the troops and, and get emotions built up. Not necessarily that he was a great orator, like, storyteller. Mm-hmm. I, I thought Nestor was more of a, like a, the storyteller type of, of guy. Odysseus is the guy that you want as you're rallying the troops about to go into battle. Is that a good understanding, or is, or, or did I miss there?
0: No, I, I think it's a good... I mean, we're you know halfway through book one, so we're kind of looking for you know, working principles, right? Like right. Where, what are we looking for and, and where can we start to kind of take something, but then we want to make sure that our uh, insights are malleable as we work through the text. Sure. No, I think I think Nestor is the storyteller. Okay. I think, absolutely. I think he's a storyteller. He's pulling from this age in the past. Um, he's quick to give his wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. He wants to give this, and he's usually trying to call men back to doing what they probably should be doing. Yeah, moderation. Right? Like. Yeah. Just like, so... Um, yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, he's, um, you know, you have to, it's sometimes he motivates the people in, in interesting ways, which we'll, you know, see that at times. Um, yeah, Odysseus, he is someone to watch. Mm-hmm. He is someone whose character we need to kind of flag and watch. And the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, we have the Iliad, the sequel to the Iliad is the Odyssey mm-hmm. and the Odyssey, the main character the protagonist really without question is Odysseus. And so what we're seeing here in the Iliad are these these little foreshadowings of, you know, because he's kind of a tertiary character. Like, he's not one of the main ones, et cetera, but he's, he's, he definitely plays a prominent role. And so do we see any insights into, like, his ethos? Like, who is he? Like, what mm-hmm. is his character? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he has this great rhetoric. It's usually uh, contextualized as his ability to convince people of things, mm-hmm. right? So his, his ability um, but not necessarily the storyteller, um, or if he does tell stories then we're going to have to look for what their meaning is. And okay. if he does tell a story, is he keeping everything in the story? Did he add something to the story? Like, et cetera. And this plays okay. a major role in the Odyssey. But right now we're kind of tracking him, and he, he's very tactful, so he's given the charge here of mm-hmm. taking uh, Chryseus, you know, and the sacrifice back to, um, you know, Apollo's priest, which, which they do and is, uh, you know, successful. So if you could look around, like, 4 or 10, okay. we've got Achilles, And so, you know, they've taken his woman, and they're going to, you know, they've won the Apollos priest, uh, Chryseus, she's going back to her dad, and, you know, now Briseus is being taken from Achilles. Mm -hmm. And so he does something here that I think really, um, you know, starts to give a lot of structure uh, to the text, right? We should mention something, actually, that I think uh, we actually skipped over, which we should mention, which I apologize for is Achilles has this kind of... Because it's going to mature, but he has this kind of gut reaction when he realizes what Agamemnon's going to do, right? So you mentioned that his rage post-Athena's intervention still carries on. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at 280, he kind of yells out this phrase that has to take on a little bit more structure, but it's it's going to basically inform the entire poem. And he says, uh, 281... Someday, I swear, a yearning for Achilles will strike Achaia's sons in all your armies, right? We're getting this thing where, for some reason, they're going to want Achilles, right? Like something is going to happen. And so if you go then back over to um, round 410, you know, he's back at his ship, and he's weeping, mm-hmm. right? He's crying, and he cries to his mom, right? Right, so here's our warlord. However, his mom happens to be a right immortal, nymph. right? Yeah, she's like a sea nymph. Um her name is Thetis. So she gets introduced around like 420, you know, he he's praying, you know, the man disgraces me. Now again, I don't think this is like a love story between Achilles and the woman that was taken from him, right? It's like, you no. know, Bri- like you know, Briseis is not like He's not saying, "Look, they took the love of my life." Blah 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 blah. I mean, they took his chattel, right? They took his like slave girl. And so, notice that, right? I mean, he's talking about that. I've been disgraced. That's what actually bothers him, right? Right. So, if we kind of keep the yeah, character, it's more
1: about honor. Although I will say, as I as I read this, uh, him, you know, praying to his mom, crying out for his mom, it's a much different side of the character than we've seen thus far. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have all this rage and all this. Like to me. This was the moment where I realized, oh, he's some—he's human. This is the human side of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like praying to his mom. He desires his mo- like his mom's help. Um is a very human, uh, 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 human thing.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think too. Yeah. Here comes rage, and now the next scene is—you know—he's he's crying by the boats, calling for his mom. Right. Right. But it's helpful when your mom happens to be an immortal. Goddess, that is a plus. It is a plus. So she's a sea nymph. Her name's Thetis. Mm-hmm. Uh, her father is the old man of the sea, which is not. So a lot of people might be familiar with like Poseidon, who's like the, the sea god, kind of par excellence. Um, the old man of the sea is like the Mediterranean uh, god uh, Nereus, N-E-R-E-U-S, Nereus, and um, and so that's that's her father. And so she comes up. She's a sea nymph, and then so he kind of tells, he kind of retells the story. These are always things to watch. I think this one's okay. One of the things, you know, it help. You can tell for a bard why this would be helpful to have a character retell everything that just happened, right? right? Because you, you know, you can have that memorized, and it gives you time to think about what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, Homer uses it tremendously at times, of like. When the story is retold to another person who wasn't there, does that person embellish? Do they leave something out? Do they add something? Is that person being manipulated? So there's a problem here where sometimes your mind starts to become numb because you're like, I really don't want to read another 40 lines on what just happened. Mm-hmm. But you actually got to push through that and be like, wait. Is he leaving something out? Or wait, mm. he didn't, like, you know, he's like, oh, I was the first one. Was he really the first one to do this? Like, there are things then I would challenge, right, as we read retold narratives to make sure they're actually correct. Okay. So he's saying, you know, Mom, I was the first one to urge him back. Like, you know, I was telling him to honor the gods. You know, the gods need to honor me. Go plead with Zeus, right? And she actually gives us a little narrative where uh, Thetis had actually rescued Zeus once when actually all the other Olympians had rebelled against him and tried to like chain him down. And she releases, um, you know, this like sea monster basically to help, um, Zeus. And so she basically, Zeus owes her one. Right. Um, and they kind of, and so, you know, she, um, you know, he's talking, so like 480 or so. And so basically what he's done here is he's praying for her. Like, So what is he asking? Because his, his prayer actually gives a lot of structure to the text. He's asking Thetis to, you need to go to Zeus. And what I want Zeus to do is basically to bless the Trojan army. I want the Trojans to come in here and slaughter my own countrymen all the way back to their ships. So keep this in mind, right? Like all of the Achaeans are on the Troy, the, the shores of Troy. Mm-hmm. And so they're fighting on these fields of Troy. So if Troy can come out of its city and push them all the way back to their ships, right? Then the the kind of um, offensive has reversed, right? And they're on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have a big city to fall back on. And so he wants, uh, or excuse me, Thetis wants, uh, or excuse me, Achilles wants Thetis, I'll get there, mm-hmm. to tell Zeus like allow them to be slaughtered, right? So that remember he talks about that yearning. So that right. yearning for Achilles would come out because he's not gonna fight. He's right. done. He's gonna go sit by his ships, he's gonna take the Myrmidon, like which is kind of his like, you know, little uh, fighting group. They're usually contextualized as some elite fighting group. I mean, they're just the the men that came from the polis that he was from, right? Mm-hmm. He's the leader of. And they're all just gonna sit over here by their ships and they're just gonna watch as this countryman is slaughtered until Right, the theory being that this will finally break the pride of Agamemnon, and Agamemnon will have to beg him to come back. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, looking at this
1: is what his desire is. Yeah,
0: like there we're just you know, which is it's an interesting prayer. Please let my countrymen be slaughtered, so right. my the king can have less yeah. lesson humility. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting prayer, right? So she, you know, he prays uh, to his mom. She agrees uh, to do this. We see Odysseus uh, return, Chryseus. Right, this is around like you know five ten to five thirty. Um, well, hold on. Hold on. Okay, before, we get,
1: before we get there, because so, yeah, so she's she she agrees. Like she right. says, I'm going to go to Zeus and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to ask him for this. And she basically tells him six things. Uh, and this is between like four four ninety to five hundred. She, she she tells him six things. She she tells she tells him she tells Achilles that he's doomed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That uh, he will have a short life. That he will be heartbroken, but she will beg Zeus. She tells him not to fight, and then she says she has to wait till twelve days before she can ask, mm-hmm. because Zeus is gone. In like, that right, like Zeus is gone with the other guys, and so she can't. Yeah, he's
0: he's not at a at, at a place where she can this. ask. So right.
1: so she so she she tells him back six things, um, which I think are, are worth tracking.
0: No, I think that's good. No, that's a good... Yeah, I see the 12 days. That's a little bit above uh, 510. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a vow. And so it's another vow that gives structure to the text, right? What is Thetis uh, going to do? She's going to intercede for her, her son to Zeus. Mm-hmm. We see that Odysseus plays his role. He returns Chryseus uh, to her father, right? This is around like 520. Right. Um, and this, so they have this... The priest then intercedes to Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this intercession of where, um, you know, please uh, pull the plague back, right, from the Achaeans, in which Apollo uh, graciously uh, agrees to. We get kind of a a sacrifice feast. They go through this, like, long thing in a sacrifice, which we we can kind of talk about at a later point of, like, the sacrifices and what that means. Um, They always
1: eat together too, right? This is something that I think we should track um, as far as, like, it, it seems like they have prayer, then they have sacrifice, and they have a meal together, and then there's entertainment, and it seems like that happens. Right. Those four things happen, and when it does, we should take note because something is trying to be told there. Correct. So then
0: we get the um, the twelfth dawn, right? So the days the days have come up. So mm-hmm. then Thetis uh, goes up to Zeus, right? She tells him, you know, what is happening. Uh, the father down like six ten, right? Uh, the father sits there in silence, you know. And then,
1: um, you know, she's saying, Grant my prayer. Um, the suspense is building. Like, right. She's like coming to him. He's not saying anything. Right. She, and
0: then, you know, he actually responds, right? And his response is interesting. He says, Disaster. You will drive me into war with Hera, right? She will provoke me, and she, with her shrill abuse. Right, which is the, the relationship The relationship between Zeus and Hera is and uh, a fun one as well. Yeah. So, but why would you do that? Because Hera, right, obviously, like, what's playing out here? Hera is for the Achaeans. She's for Greeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants Troy decimated. We're not actually sure why yet, but she is full bore for the Achaeans, right? She's already interceded right. uh, a few times to help them. And so, but the Zeus go ahead and says, right, I will bring it all to pass. Look, I will bow my head if that will satisfy you, that I remind you that among the immortal gods is the strongest, truest sign I can give. No word or work of mine, nothing can be revoked. And then, it's really interesting, because then after 630, so he decreed...
1: Yeah, kind of a lackluster commitment, huh?
0: Yeah, well, then he... It's, I, I just found this, like, we talk about the divine will... And here we get this um, assent, right? So the divine will through Zeus says, yes, like I will grant your petition. And what he does is he just gives her a nod. So that's the official like, yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. But even his nod... Right, what ends up happening? His craggy, dark brows and deathless locks came pouring down from the thunderhead of the great immortal king, and great shockwaves spread throughout all Olympus. Like, yeah, the god, right, Zeus, his will, he has assented to something, Mm -hmm. and that causes physical shockwaves to go out. It's kind of this beautiful picture of uh, the weight of the divine will. Cuz notice and this is a big deal as Zeus attested to himself, no word or work of mine, nothing can be revoked. So this is something that's really interesting that all the other gods in Olympus are very fickle and they can bounce all over the place. They're doing this tomorrow, they're doing this yesterday. I mean, they're all over the place. Right. Zeus's will cannot be revoked. So once he says I'm doing X, that's what happens. Now, clearly one of the things that's interesting and Homer makes it interesting is we really have to be careful and track like what exactly, specifically, did he assent to, right? And what what are the other things? And so what's going to happen in the Iliad, this is why you got to keep track of these things, is this is going to start causing this web, right? So now we have an oath from Achilles. I'm not fighting, I'm not doing it until Agamemnon relents, okay? So that's the oath. Thetis gave her promise, and that's pretty much been done, right? But she's going to come in a little later and continue to help, but she's done that. Now Zeus has said... Yes, which Mm -hmm. means, according to as you pointed this out at the beginning of Book One, like according to the will of Zeus, now the Achaeans are going to suffer, and and the Trojans are going to come up and slaughter them up against their own ships, Mm -hmm. right? So for the sake of Thetis, for the sake of Achilles, Mm -hmm. this puts him at war with Hera because Hera is for the Achaeans, and she's bold move, right? Just going straight against your wife, yeah, slash sister. So (laughs) just going to throw that out there, right? (laughs) So she. And again, like so it's really funny. Like Hera can't fight him, but Hera plays this role of like the nagging, suspicious the wife. wife. Yeah. yeah. Right. So like Hera knows something's happened. She saw Thetis. Like there's the shock waves, right? She sure already
1: doesn't like her because there was a love affair there. With whom? Uh with uh Thetis, right?
0: For like Achilles?
1: No, yeah. No. no. With with uh with whom? Zeus and Thetis? No. Oh, I thought there was a love affair there.
0: It not for Achilles. If there's another one I don't know about it.
1: Oh, okay. Maybe if I'm, it's uh, maybe I'm tracking wrong. Sorry.
0: No, you're fine. If it's um Achilles um Achilles is interesting because he's one of the uh scenarios in which um it's a mortal man and an immortal woman. So his father is Peleus, who was introduced at the beginning, right? Seeing of mm-hmm. the rage. A uh, Peleus son Achilles, uh-huh. and um, and it's their marriage actually plays deeply into the Iliad, but we're not told why for a long time. So actually, they're not even. It's not even just like an affair. They actually get married. Peleus and Thetis. So Achilles, oh, okay. Achilles mom and dad. Uh-huh. His mom being an immortal, you know, sea nymph. Right. They actually get married, and their marriage is another ancillary story to the Iliad, and probably. Where the if you keep pushing, pushing, pushing back, to where did the what caused the Trojan War? The marriage between those two is probably the scene that actually probably starts it all. But Hmm. Homer holds this kind of in reserve. And here she is; she doesn't live with Pelias anymore. Um, She lives back with her father. Um, But they play this. You know,
1: I guess um, I just made that assumption. Maybe that was just an assumption I made because it just seemed like Hera was very jealous. Like she came back and like was very jealous that. (laughs) with right. Zeus and her being together.
0: Well, in Greek mythology, it actually is a really good assumption just, just to assume that everyone is Zeus's child and that <laughs> Zeus has slept with everybody. <laughs> right. That's actually, if that's like your baseline assumption, you'll get it right like 80% of the time. Okay, right? okay. Yeah. So no, that's a, it's a good assumption okay. uh, to bring into things is that Zeus has probably committed adultery and Hera's probably angry. Those are good. Those okay. are good. <laughs> so um, yeah, Hera finds these things out. Um, you know, we kind of get this snapshot into the relationship between Zeus and Hera Right. So, you know, all of a sudden, like Zeus, um, you know, she's nagging at him. She's saying, what have you done? Blah, blah, blah. blah. Down um, about half, maybe 675 or so, um, Zeus calls her the maddening one. Right. You and your eternal suspicions. I can never escape you. So that's one side of it. Right. Like you you literally are nagging me to death. You annoy me. I mean, I have slept with, like, I don't know how many other people and, like, sired all these demigods everywhere, but... But that's beside the right, point. Right, point. Don't bring that in. Like, as my sister-wife, right. you're super annoying, right. right? But then, that power aspect comes in, right? Mm-hmm. He says, ah, but tell me, Hera, just what can you do about all this? Nothing. Right. Now, that's not in... Well, then he actually talks about throttling her with his irresistible hands, so just, again, going back to marital insights here, um, right. it's not great, but there is something though the track here that um zeus is will like he so he's all powerful in this context we want to talk about him like that and his will cannot be revoked however so you're saying what does hera do like why does she care why is she nagging why is she doing all suspicions Mm -hmm. why the gameplay because zeus can be tricked Hmm. right his power is like a raw power right i'm more powerful than all of you but it's not an omniscience, right? He doesn't know all things. And so he can be tricked. He can be distracted. He can be lied to. Hmm. And so, and if you lie to him and he promises you something, then you get that thing because he can't revoke his own word. Wow. See what yeah, I'm saying? That makes sense. So now this is, so you say, well, why why is Hera why? always like going around doing why this? Why is doing that, right? Because she can manipulate him.
1: Well, and it seems like he almost gets embarrassed. You know, that's when he, right. get, he, he brings out, he resorts to this threatening violence you know mm-hmm. he, he like plays the game with her for a little bit and then he gets backed into a corner and he see he realizes he's kind of backed into a corner and he gets embarrassed and basically he then he, he appeals to his to his strength
0: right so here i mean um you know just as we kind of wrap up book one yeah um
1: and this is going to be a longer episode just because there's a lot going on that we have to explain in book one right Correct. i, mean, I think
0: this is uh, however long we've been going. I yeah. think. But book one is, one, it's it's one of the more complicated ones. And two, like we need to get this right. right. Because what we're doing... Let's
1: build a, a solid foundation. A solid foundation, right. Not on sand.
0: Uh, right. I'm just throwing no. that out there. No, you're great. Yeah. Uh, because it, what we're doing is we're seeing a lot of the relations, promises, threads, vows, oaths that then are going to weave the Trojan War. Right. right. And we have to kind of track these things. If you kind of mess up who's on what side and what's the intent of and things like this, um, I think it's gonna be difficult so Hera right it, again we've said it's it's his, uh that Zeus's wife it's also his sister they're both um, they are both uh, children of Kronos. so just like your little Greek mythology 101 because we're gonna get a lot of things we talked about um, in the kind of preliminary episode on like who is Homer we talked about some of the things about mythology and things like this um, but Zeus um, has a father, his father is Kronos, which mm-hmm. was a Titan, mm-hmm. and Kronos' father, um, was basically Uranus, which is the uh, basically the the uh, did you really just laugh at that? Yeah, I'm oh my so gosh, sorry. I just can't, I just can't. Oh my god, how old are you? I'm sorry, I just can't. I'm
1: sorry, I'm sorry. We're gonna have, I wasn't audi- ready, I just wasn't ready, and it, it we're him. gonna have auditions for new co hosts, yeah, soon. I understand. I
0: understand. So, moving on, um, anyway. So the very kind of... One way to look at the beginning of... To simplify it, the beginning of Greek mythology Mm -hmm. is you have Gaia, which is um, the earth, right? Um, I would say she's, you know, divine. And you have Uranus, which is like the heavens. Mm -hmm. So they come together and they produce the Titans. And these are like the first round of like the immortals. Kronos is the highest of these, right? Um, Kronos then rebels and slaughters his own father. He dethrones his father off of um, the throne and he becomes like the chief immortal, right? So then Kronos, uh, however, then doesn't want his children to rebel against him. So when his wife, who's a titan and also I'm pretty sure a sister, has a child, then he eats them, right? And he just keeps doing this until they finally are able to trick him to eat a stone instead of his child a son, and they take off the son uh, to be trained and to be grown up and etc. and that son is Zeus. So then Zeus then comes back and wages war against his father, chronos and um, slaughters him, cutting him open and taking out all of Zeus's brothers and sisters out of uh, Kronos. Mm. They weren't and, digested. No, so they, he They're saves them all. Out. They're just hanging out in there, mm. and he takes them out and uh, they overthrow the titans and so this is then properly we speak about like the olympian gods they then make their home on mount olympus zeus is the highest like his his brothers are also the highest where you get hades uh god of the underworld and poseidon mm-hmm. god of the sea um and then Olymp- and then from there basically uh they then populate and you get another a bunch of other gods right so some of them are the sons of Kronos. Uh, which are the the more elder gods, and then you have the new ones, which are basically like children of Zeus. If Zeus has uh, or Thetis, any of these gods or goddesses has a child with a mortal, then those they're demigods. They're like half god, so they're not they're not uh, immortal, right? They can die, but they usually have some great. You know, attributes. attributes. And we're going to see a lot of them actually in the text, right? Achilles would be one of them now that we've kind of seen his mother was actually a sea nymph. So, like, he also has this kind of divine uh, patronage. So, that's who Hera is. And then we also introduce at the end to Hephaestus, uh, right here at the end of book one. Hephaestus is an interesting god. Do you know what do you know about him?
1: Well, he's the son of Hera, right?
0: He's the son. No. 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 He does talk about his. Um, to bring his loving mother comfort, I don't think, uh, if I recall correctly, I do not think that his mom is actually Hera. I could be wrong. We could circle oh, so back he's on just, that.
1: Like, trying now to bring his loving mo- mother a little comfort, the white armed goddess Hera.
0: Yeah, but I still don't think it's his actual mom. Oh, because the thing that's interesting about Hephaestus is so that I know
1: nothing because that's what I thought it was. I thought it, that's who he was.
0: Okay, we so can we can double check. But the interesting thing about Hephaestus here is that he laments being. Um, thrown off of Olympus, right? Once by Zeus. So he tried to interfere like Zeus. He tried to interfere once between Zeus and Hera, right? And he got chunked off of Olympus, but he's also been chunked off before, which when he was um, born, right? uh, Hera threw him off because my understanding is that he was not her son. He was another bastard, sired by Zeus. And so she chunks him off of Olympus Hmm. and he actually becomes crippled. So he's unique amongst the gods because he is actually a crippled God. Uh, He's the God of fire. Hmm. He's the God of, um, of armory. He's the blacksmith God. Ironically. Um, And like what way? Yeah. And he creates like the weapons he creates. Actually, it mentions here at the end that he creates like their houses Um, he also tends to be very good natured.
1: Yeah. I mean, he brings them back together. Right. So like in this scene, he, er, the tension has like, they're fighting and he's trying to bring everybody calm down. Everybody get, you know, let's all Mm -hmm. enjoy each other. He's company. So he's the one that, that brings a, you know, he toasts everybody. He actually brings back a smile in Hera. Right. Uh, and then, uh, Apollo is in Oh, this is where it is. Yeah. It's right there. Boom. I, Early in the episode, I was like, in book two, but or book three, but it's book one. Uh, you know, Apollo is entertaining everybody, uh, and it ends happily ever after with Zeus and Hera sleeping together. <laughs> that makes it happily ever after. Well, I mean, that's that's why I mean that's why it, it seemed. Yeah, no, that's a good one.
0: So overall, so this is your first read through the Iliad, like. Mm-hmm. You finished book one. Like, what was like your raw takeaway? Like you were. I was reading. excited. Like okay. I was
1: pumped because uh, there was a lot of things happening. I think that the the style in which Homer writes, you know, this media in re, in res, like you were talking about uh, in the other episode, it yields itself to wanting to keep reading because you don't understand because he doesn't. Uh, spoon-feed you all the all the answers, right? He doesn't spoon-feed spoon feed you like, this is this person, this is what they're struggling with. You're having to uh, find it out yourself, right? And so I was enjoying it. Uh, I, uh, I was a little confused on different names because this is n- new to me, right? Um, mm-hmm. But um, overall, I, was, uh, I finished book one. I was like, all right, let's roll. Let's get, let's get to book two.
0: Good. Okay, so you get Ascend Great Books podcast bonus points. What? Yeah. I didn't know so there was we, such a th- we thing. Can, you can cash those in for uh, things. Okay, so no, you're correct. Well, listen to this. So this is from Edith Hamilton, which I again, this is why we have her, because I think she's a good uh, quick reference. So on Hephaestus, the god of fire sometimes said to be the son of Zeus and Hera, and sometimes only of Hera alone, who bore him... Yeah, this is where you get bonus points. ...who bore him in retaliation for Zeus's having brought forth Athena. So we haven't talked about this yet, but Athena... Um, with her story, she's the goddess of wisdom, but she actually comes straight from Zeus. She actually comes cracking out of his head. He has a headache, and so finally they open up his head, and out comes Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Wow. So, she, so apparently, uh, Hera did not like that, even though there doesn't seem to be another person involved, but she still doesn't like it. Among the perfectly beautiful immortals, he only was ugly. He was lame as well. In one place in the Iliad... He says that his shameless mother, when he saw that he was born deformed, cast him out of heaven. So in that narrative, then he's deformed when he's born. In another place, he declares that Zeus did this, angry with him for trying to defend Hera. So one he's chunked out as an infant. The other one he's chunked out as... An adult, or what do you want to talk about, right?
1: Nothing says retaliation to your husband than having a, a, a child with
0: okay. Well, Nothing says retaliation <laughs> to your husband as having a kid all by yourself with and no then, one else involved. And then chunking him down. And then he's ugly. Yeah. And you chunk him off, and either he's born deformed or he becomes deformed. And then you gave birth to the only. You really showed him. You, she got him. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So we're going to push our understanding of Hephaestus. Awesome. Okay. Anything else on book one? Anything that we've. Missed. We still like reading. Well, I mean, it,
1: we, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we uh, missed a lot, but we don't want this to be a, a 17 hour podcast uh, on book one. We want you guys to tune in next week as we uh, look at book two.
0: Yep. So we've looked
1: riveting. It is
0: Hey, book two. I'll, I'll give a defense of book two. I All will right. give a defense of it. We've got the guide. There's more details there if you want to go read through the guide and look at the citations. Uh, also the guide. Almost has line by line citations. We talk about things like where you can Mm -hmm. find in the text. It can help you become a better reader. And yeah, we appreciate it.
1: You can follow us on Twitter. Correct. We post things on Twitter these days. We do. Um, We don't have a MySpace page, uh, but we do have Twitter. You can check (laughs) us out. You weren't ready for that one. No, I didn't. No. Uh, Anyway, yeah, go check us out. You can go to thegreatbookspodcast.com. Thanks, Deacon. We'll, We'll see you next week. Thank you,
0: Adam.